0: Hi everybody. This episode of Grief is My Side Hustle is really moving and meaningful. Diana Cooperschmidt has written a book and spends time talking about the life of her special needs daughter, Emma. It's not an easy conversation. It's not an easy story. She is so open and giving in terms of showing us the real truth about what it's like. To become a parent to a special needs child, which is a similar trajectory to becoming someone who grieves. She talks about the grief of parenting. She talks about the ways in which she lets herself down in the early experience of parenting her daughter. It's a beautiful conversation. I'm really glad you're here. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I'm so delighted today to be here with Diana Cooperschmidt. I'm going to read you her bio real quick. Mm-hmm. Diana holds a Master of Social Work degree and works for the Department of Health in the Early Intervention Program, a federal entitlement program servicing children birth to three with developmental delays and disabilities. She's published online with the Huffington Post, Manifest Magazine, Mouth the Magazine, power moms, motherwell magazine, still standing magazine and her view from home. On weekends, she indulges her creative passion working as a portrait photographer specializing in newborn, family, maternity and event photography. She lives in New York City with her family and her memoir, Emma's Laugh, The Second The Gift of Second Chances came out with She Writes Press in June of 2021. 20, 20. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you so much Thank for being you. here. It's I am fine. so glad to have you here, Diana. Thanks Aww. so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. So I, my book came out recently. Yeah. I started writing it about six years ago as a way of processing and making sense of the grief of losing our 18 year old special needs daughter, Emma. And I don't know what, cause I, what possessed me to write? Start writing. I, you know, I'm I don't have a background in writing. You know, I'm right. a social worker. Just something compelled me to start putting words on paper, and then it sort of, you know, evolved into paragraphs and pages. And then I realized I don't know anything about what I'm doing here, so I I, I have to get some, you know, training. And so I started taking workshops, etc. And I always say that. I'm a reluctant and an accidental author because this is not, you know, something that I set out to do to write a book about losing a child, but here we are. Yeah. Yeah. And I found It's interesting. I say that when Emma was alive, you know, you were kind of like in the middle of the storm, right? You're like in the eye of the storm and you don't have time to like pause and process. And uh, make sense of what's going on. You're sort of on autopilot or cruise control and you just want to get to the to the next day. And so that's how we lived 18 years of our life happily and wonderful and wonderfully because when Emma was first born, the one of the doctors initially sort of delivered a death sentence. He when we inquired about her prognosis, he said, well, children with her constellation of genetic illness don't live past their first birthday. So oh, man. when she turned 18, <clears throat> we were kind of like aiming a middle finger in his direction. like Absolutely.
0: You know, she... Like, thanks for all the help doc.
1: Exactly. And, and then she got sick. But so when I started writing, I grieved, you know, her actual physical loss. But the truth is that the grief initially started when she was born, right? Because grief is loss and it comes in different iterations. And, you know, when she was first born and we were told that she had a genetic, a rare genetic chromosomal abnormality, she was one of a kind. The doctors couldn't tell us anything except that she was going to live with profound physical intellectual disability with myriad of medical issues and, and that was, you know, the information that we were given and I spiraled into grief yes. and here I am a social worker and I've worked with special needs kids. And yet I don't think I could do this. I'm 26. Yes. I'm young. I, I we don't have a background. We don't have history. This is uncharted territory. And, and I just didn't think I could do it. And so when the hospital social worker broached the subject of possibly putting her up for adoption, I didn't storm out of the office, I felt like she threw me a life raft. And I Mm -hmm. stayed. And I listened. And I said, I mean, I was, I I was so ashamed. I was like, Listen, uh, who would want to do this? I don't feel like I'm capable, willing, able to raise my own special needs child, like who would do that. And she said, there are people that have a calling in life. And that's the only way I can explain it. And we went home, and we spoke my husband and I, and we decided that if we were to find her a good home, that we would give her up. And that's what happened. We visited a family. They were an Orthodox Jewish family. We're Jewish, but we're not like observant or religious. But we just figured, okay, this is a God-fearing family. They're not going to hurt her. They're going to take yeah. good care of her. This yeah. is like, such a gift. You know, we're like these, you know, atheist Jews. And here, we're, you know, coming like out of the fold. And so we met well, we this want family. Better,
0: right? That's the, you wanted someone we who- want. had the skills and maybe more, more religion. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Well, so I told myself that, you know, I deserve better. Emma deserved better. Like I felt like if I couldn't give her the life that she deserved, then somebody else could. And that was, you know, a gift that I could give her at the very least, because we couldn't see her like being in a living in a facility or, you know, we wanted a home for her. And if we couldn't give her one, then somebody else, you know, would, so we met this family. They had four adopted Down syndrome kids and we were like, this is unreal. Like we couldn't have had a better profile of a family. Yeah. And so she was about five months old when we gave her up. And I was already pregnant with my second child with my with my son Josh. Because I told myself that I, I wanted a do-over. You know, yeah. I told myself that I, this next baby, I was gonna get it right, right? because I'd been raised always to sort of like reach for perfection, right? Not only that, you know, my history is that we are Jewish refugees from Soviet Ukraine. So when we came here as a family, we were like rejected by our, our, you know, country of origin. And here we have this opportunity to make better in this new country that wasn't going to judge us based on our religion and so forth. And my father would always say like, you know, Kids have to do and be better than their parents. And so when I had Emma, I was like, this is not better. <laughs> this is,
0: you know, yeah. so not
1: better. And I felt like, you know, there's pressure with being an immigrant. Like you feel like you have to prove your place in this new world, in this country, yeah. right? Like you have this opportunity, you can't mess it up. You have to be successful. You have to do better. You have to, have to, have to. So there's all these. And so when I had Emma, I was like, I, I felt like a failure. Like I felt like I got it wrong. So the second baby was going to be my do-over. And so after, you know, we separated from Emma, we had an open adoption. So we could call and we could talk. And I found out after the fact that my parents and my husband were visiting her in Pennsylvania in this adopted home behind my back. like a conspiracy theory i was first i was like outraged but then i was like so proud of them you know they did that they yeah because we spent five months with her before we let her go and so they they you know they needed to see her and they needed to connect and every time they went to visit her she was in the hospital invariably with pneumonia and rsv and she was not doing well and the adoptive mother would call me and say and report to me that emma's sick and she's in the hospital and I really thought that she was like preparing me for the worst, right? Yeah. So here I am in New York, there in Pennsylvania. I'm literally sitting on my hands, pregnant out to here, grieving, thinking I made a mistake. I yeah. made a mistake. And when I finally shared this with my husband, he's, that's when he told me that he'd been visiting her. And at oh the last God. visit, he found out something different, that the conditions that we gave her up no longer existed and that possibly we could get her back. So everything just kind of like the universe shifted on its axis. And we were like, this is the second chance. This is the do-over. And so the do-over was that she came back to us five months after we gave her up. She was on oxygen. She was sicker, but she was here and we were going to do better, you know? And this was a gift because we knew what life was like with her and without her. And we preferred the former, I don't know adoptive families that have those kind of opportunities. Like usually yes. adoption is like, that's it. It's done. And it can't be reversed, but we, it, fortuitously things happened in our favor and we got to, you know, make it up to her. And I swore that for the next, you know, rest, for the rest of my life, for the rest of her life, I was going to make up, you know, the mistake that I made in that I took a detour and then found my way back. But you know, it's funny when I write, when I, as I was writing and reflecting, you know, I realized that there aren't really mistakes that we make because, and we need to make those mistakes, right? Because had we not separated from her, we would not have known what it's like not to be with her. It would have been a lost opportunity. And so I'm very grateful for the mistake that I made because in the end, it ended up being really not a mistake, but the right course that we needed to take. She was meant to be with us and return to us.
0: You can't know what you don't know, right? And so there's, I mean, there's so much in the beginning part of that story, which I have read because you've written it beautifully. And I said this to you just in our intro, the truthiest truth of truth, even when it's really uncomfortable. That is a hard story that you are describing. And so it makes hard, hard in all the ways, right? Hard to be a brand new young mother expecting this life course when you're talking about being a daughter of an immigrant and the hustle that's expected and required. And, you know, a special needs kid doesn't fit into that dream. I know that there are some people out there that can really, really deeply relate to that. And maybe others who haven't had that experience, but but the writing which you describe as the process that you go through in, and, you know, we're not spoiling that you lost your daughter when she was 18, that she died of pneumonia. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that the writing goes back and helps us with all the hard. And we have some neuroscience on that, that when we go back into our memories, which are really hard, and we are able to sort of stitch together a narrative, it both helps us with our memory, meaning I don't have to keep remembering it and touching it because I know that it's written down in this way that's you know sacred and important, but also it helps us create the narrative of understanding. And you know, that's a tough story to carry, which is I couldn't show up in this moment the way that I would have wanted to. Thank God I got a do over because that really, I couldn't have known until I knew. And I imagine you must hear from people who who read your story that that was a really important element of motherhood. You know, I think about the conversations that I had with my mom as I was older, when she would say, "I, I have no idea, Megan, I didn't know what I was doing. Or like, yeah, no, that was a terrible mistake we made. And- I don't know that I understood that that was part of parenting because I was parented by parents who made it seem like they were never making mistakes, that they had somehow been handed you know, a book. This is how you parent children, do this with conviction. But my conversations with parents who have children that are born with health issues and are not gonna develop in the ways that we see on television and our neighbor and our sister, is they know from the very first second, I'm alone in a way that other people are not. And I have to figure this out for myself. I have to figure out who I am, as we all do as parents. But I think people who are parenting a child with a genetic abnormality that doesn't even, it didn't even fall into the category of Down syndrome you are inventing this for yourself. So will you tell us a little bit about what that process was like, like adding adding children to your family and also being someone who had a job and a career. What was the the growing into parenting Emma mm-hmm. like when you add Josh and Hannah to mm-hmm. the to the collection?
1: I want to to your last point, just say in terms of Yes, being new parents and being young parents, and then having uh, not knowing what you're doing, generally speaking, right? Because kids don't come with instructions and having a special needs child. I think with me, what happened was that I felt so morally bankrupt when I decided that I couldn't raise her, right? That, that there was something wrong with me. Like what kind of mother am I to give away A, a child, but B, you know, a child with disabilities and a an imperfect child away. So I, like, I just felt like a, a horrible human being, mm-hmm. morally bankrupt. But then in the writing of the book, I started to reflect and read other people's writing. And I realized that, you know, when I decided to give Emma up, I was buying into society's narrative that told us that, You know, children or people with disabilities are to be grieved. They are not less than necessarily, but they're to be pitied, and they have this difficult existence. And I just saw myself alongside that. And I didn't want to belong to that club because there's, there's a lot of themes of belonging in my book and in my life, right? Because we start out being basically kicked out of a country that we didn't belong in and then trying to acclimate to new. And then also I had some destabilization where my parents bought a house. I was a teenager and they moved me to a different borough and I felt completely unmoored and, and finding myself trying to belong again. So there's a lot of theme of belonging, right? I didn't belong in, as this new kid on yeah. the block, having to navigate these cliques. And so, you know, that was traumatic. I talk about different iterations of grief, right? Like there's the ultimate grief of losing a loved one, but then Mm -hmm. there are other sort of permutations of grief where you lose a friendship or you lose job security or you lose community. In my sense, there was that loss of community, you know, loss of a country, then losing my friends by moving. So I felt really sort of unanchored and then By the time we were married and I was pregnant with Emma, I just, I told myself, okay, because I developed a lot of anxiety when we moved um, to Staten Island as a teenager and stayed with me for a couple of decades. And so I felt like, okay, I'm starting a new life. I'm going to have this baby, you know, this is the beacon and I'm coming into the Renaissance of my life and things are going to get better. And then I have Emma and it's like, I'm back into this world where how do I fit? How does she belong? How does she fit into this world? How do I fit into this special needs world? And so even after we brought her back, I refused to like participate in that sphere of of special needs parents and community because I told myself, yes, I have a special needs child, but I have now two healthy children. And I always kind of straddle these two universes but I insisted that we were going to have a normal life and we're going to have normal experiences of a family, you know, and that we were going to create a new normal. And this is the, the, the narrative that I told myself. So, yeah. So back to your question, we decided we wanted other children, obviously with Joshua, we had that do over, but we also didn't want him to be, to solely have a special needs sibling because we didn't want him to feel the burden of maybe taking care of her when we were no longer here and so we had a third child and you know uh, Hannah was our millennium baby and and life was good you know the things that I feared I feared like a dark marginalized existence with the special needs child that I was going to be depressed with and woe is me that was not happening I was working my husband was working our Typical kids had what they needed in terms of, you know, we, they had their activities, the requisite instrument, the requisite sport. And Emma had her, had her therapies and she had her school and she had her nurses. You know, we created this, this, this crazy world, but it was like, it worked for us. You know, like Emma had her needs met and she was happy and she was safe and medically she was stable. And we were giving our healthy kids what we thought they needed in terms, but it's interesting that as a parent, I sort of lived these two dichotomies, right? Because yep. in, you know, my healthy kids had to reach their potential, whatever that was. And I was gonna help them get there. So yep. there were certain conditions or standards, you know, set for them. The bar was different for my yeah. healthy kids than they were for Emma, obviously, because you know, Emma didn't have agency over her body and over her mind. She was developmentally like an eighth eight or nine month old. Right. But she had this massive heart and she had this laugh and she had this joy about her. I felt like with my healthy kids, I had to be a certain way. Like I had to be on always like, we had to be studying and reading and doing and going. And it was never enough. Like there were conditions set in both directions. Like they had to be good students. And I had to be a great parent, but with Emma, you know, I was always enough. It was enough for me to sit with her and play and sing and clap. And she was enough and I was enough. And, you know, I was living these two dichotomies. I didn't see it at the time, of course. I only in reflection, like I said, after when you're out of the eye of the storm and you you assess the damage and you get to reflect um, and find meaning in what transpired, then you start to say like, oh, this is what I was doing. And, but again, you're doing the best you can, right? They don't come with instructions. And the truth is we had a good life and I felt like all the kids had what they needed. I I hope they did. I think my kids would agree they turned out okay. We made sure not to neglect them, but there were struggles in, you know, and that's where the other um, sort of grief comes in because the truth is that, you know, I was grieving different situations before I was grieving her ultimate death. And what I was grieving when we were living with her was, A, initially the life that, you know, she would never have in terms of being able to experience physically and otherwise the same experiences that her siblings had, right? Because she had a seizure disorder. And so we couldn't travel with her. She was non-ambulatory, non-verbal and had a marriage and she couldn't eat by mouth. So we were kind of tied to her G-tube all the time. So Traveling, which we love to do, and we did, you know, as much as we could. We couldn't do so many um, times with Emma because she would be overstimulated. Let's say on a ride and have a seizure, and so we had this. You you had guests on who you know who were raising two boys with uh, ASD mm-hmm. with autism, and they talk about sort of like a PTSD experience. Right, you're afraid of what the next experience is going to bring in terms of you know, having things fall apart, or, you know, in our case, Emma having a seizure? And so you're afraid to create those experiences again, because of your memory of how traumatic the last time was, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. Each time you're talking, my mind is like opening up all of these little threads of discussion. But so one thing that occurred to me when you were talking is that what you're describing is that you got to grow sort of two different parent parts, the part that you expected, which was to typical healthy children, and you're going to push them and make sure they have soccer and instruments and all of that. And it sounds like you had this unexpected, but really beautiful experience of parenting Emma in this way that sort of, it's a smaller circle of enoughness because the demands and expectations on her life are the kind that you really push for. Because her developmental age is so young. And I'm sitting with that for a second. And and even the fact that you are parenting now and you're parenting without Emma in your life. And she died, is it six years ago? Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, I think we look at when maybe parenting is part of it, but I think we look at some of these things in our lives in grief and, and part of what we don't understand is that nothing is really permanent, right? That the way that something feels in fresh grief, which is usually impossible, it's hard to understand how the world is even on its axis, still spinning. You just can't, how did people get dressed this morning? How are people taking a breath and going to work? And it's because it doesn't always feel this way. There's this beautiful writer Jessica Cantwitz. That's her. That's her mantras. It won't always feel this way. But I think part of the gift that you're sharing, although maybe that's not the word you, you use, but I think it applies, is this idea that there are elements of yourself that you develop in relationship to a special needs child. And I think as you know that very special episode with Una and Ahmet, they say the same, which is you learn things about yourself that maybe are not what you expected and feel really amazing. And you have a separate, as they did, because their daughter, Maya, that ha, you know, has developed typically and is in college. But there is the part of parenting, maybe that that is what I thought it was going to look like moving forward. And so when you're talking about the writing, it's like integrating these parts you're, you are writing about this and, and kind of making it make sense to yourself, which is one of the gifts of writing. It's not the only thing I think that helps us carry and navigate grief, but it is something that creates a product that can give back to us. I have a writer's workshop that you can join on my website and people you know, talk about going back and looking at their writing in early grief or when they sat down and wrote out of frustration or anger. When we're doing those things, we're writing not as our whole self. We're writing as one who has grief driving the bus. Grief will tell the story and tell the story to us in really important ways. And I think one of the things in trauma therapy that we talk about is if you can really hear grief's story, And other people get to drive the bus. It, you know, he'll, he'll, that part will relinquish and be able Mm -hmm. to say, okay. And also joy and also gratitude. And also Mm -hmm. I'm super curious. This is what's been threading through my mind because one of the things that you said was I really didn't want to be a part of the special needs community. Did that change for you at all? Or did you and your family sort of become your (laughs) own unit and you stayed Disconnected or or avoidant of that quote unquote supportive community because I don't know I certainly don't know that everyone finds it as supportive as as yeah um, we would want it to be but I'm just curious about that
1: yeah so in terms of community uh, because we had so much family and friends um, and we created this village I for me that was enough like that was my community I didn't feel the need to reach out to other special needs parents. And yeah. there were people to reach out to because she went to a school and, and so forth. And I could have been more involved in that. But again, I was so focused on building this normal life. right? Yeah. And I regret it now because in the writing of it and in the promoting of the book, I, you know, I've met other special needs parents who are authors yeah. and they're writing about their experiences with their now special needs child. And I've connected on so many levels with these people. And I see now that I was, there was something missing from that. There was a piece missing that maybe um, had I had that, I would have come to sort of the realizations and the insights that I came in the writing of the book sooner. Yeah. But again, you don't know what you don't know. You
0: don't know what you don't know.
1: Yeah, and the truth is that, at the time, I didn't feel like I was missing anything, right? I had these people in my life, I had people that I could turn to. And I had people that supported me. And I had my village and the nurses and the therapists and the teachers and everybody loved her. And I was like, okay, we have enough people like we have enough support. So yes, could I have even benefited more from that by being within a community of special parents? Probably, I'm sure. But you know, it was what it was and it worked. It worked at the time.
0: And I think any one of us can look back and say, I mean, I've looked back at all of the things that happened in my twenties and wish that I had asked for more help or had more support, particularly from like female mentors. But I think part of the reason I was asking about the community is that it's sort of similar to that concept of traumatic growth, I think, which is there is this ethos about grief and loss which is like, it's going to transform you into something better, amazing, and great. You're going to get gifts from loss in this way. And I do grief and loss work all day long since I lost my mom and dad. So I fall into that category of people whose lives really did take sort of not a left turn because I was already a trauma therapist. I already did a lot of grief and loss work already, you know, So it's probably still in my wheelhouse, but I know many people who lost a child, started a foundation, you know, cared for a sick relative, went back to medical school or social work school or something like that, that, that really, when they look back in their grief story, there's a bright light of change that they appreciate and maybe even find meaning in. But what I also know, which is what you started with, is most of us are drowning in grief. Most of us can't even swim. And maybe we're going to come out with a narrative that is something that we can sell as a memoir because it has a hero's journey to it, right? Like something bad happens, person grabs their resources, they go through something bad, and then it's not so bad in the end. I don't know that that's the story for everybody. And I probably, there's like a hundred entry points of that. And so I do think there are people who, when they're drowning, They go under the water and find the other people who are, you know, pulling you into the lifeboat from that way. And so there Mm -hmm. are these supportive communities, there are grief and loss groups, there are boards where everybody's talking about their children with special needs and sharing resources. And what I, what I say to folks is, you know, just because someone else is doing it that way, doesn't mean it's the right way for you. So when I'm asking the question, it really is just sort of an open-hearted, like, I'm curious because just as many people circle the wagons, they don't go to a grief group. They talk only to their sister. They haven't, you know, branched out and gone to that school that their neighbor told them could be really great for their kid because it's too many miles away and, you know, it's going to interfere with baseball. So there are just as many people who, create a small clutch and survive that way as enter a giant ocean. And the folks who say this is amazing on their bad days, they complain about you know that one lady who's always talking too much and is too angry and there's somebody in their group that makes it uncomfortable. So they love it and they hate it. And when you have a small clutch of people, your city block and these are the folks or your neighborhood or your school or whoever, there are times where this isn't enough people. It, you know, I, they don't understand and they don't get it and they don't. So I think there's imperfect and perfect in both. Mm-hmm. But your story is one that maybe we haven't shared on in here, which is somebody who built their neighborhood close. And it's interesting to hear. And I'm connecting it back to what you said about belonging. That That a smaller group makes sense to me when you've had some breaks around belonging. Right. right that that notion of I know who my people are, I know who I can rely on, and I know how to keep them close. You know,
1: my decision to keep this small circle were had to do a lot with, again, belonging to this, you know, acceptable community, right of like typically developing children. And also, I was very wary of, you know, pity being pitied, getting special treatment. so, when it came to work, for instance, I made sure never to call out or take time having to do with Emma, right? I didn't want to be that person where people could point a finger at and say like, oh, you know, she gets special treatment because she has a special needs child and she gets, you know, that I didn't want to be that person. So every time or not every time, but often when Emma needed to be, let's say, picked up from school, I didn't want to, be that person to say like, Oh, I need this time. I need this special attention because I have a special needs child. So more often than not, I would ask my husband to like pick her up, whatever. And he had like had the more important job. So I don't know if he's a saint, you know, and he did what <clears throat> I needed him to do. But, you know, part of my transformation when Emma was alive was coming to terms and really accepting her because for a long time I planned this life where Anna and Josh would be off to college and then on their own. And Emma would be finished with her special school and we would find her a group home within the community and we would visit on the weekends. And like, I wanted to reclaim the life that I thought that I deserved. I I paid my dues, you know, like a quid pro quo. Like if I do this, if I play by the rules, my life is going to kind of fall back into place the way that I originally saw it. And for a long time, I planned that. And then, you know, we had some times where we were like separated from her. She would go to sleep away camp for a couple of weeks or we would take vacation and things good things happen, bad things happen. And I realized that no way am I going to be physically ever separate from her as long as I could physically care for her. Mm. So when I and also there was the one incident where I was picking her from school and there was this torrential rain, like the rain was coming down sideways and we're driving this highway. And I see these two buses like converging in front of us. And I I, I get goosebumps thinking about it. I have like this, it's almost like a a spiritual experience where I feel like our car is lifted and it's pushed past the buses. And I look back and there's like an accident behind us. So something, I felt like something intervened. The important piece of that experience was that My first thought was, oh my God, I have Emma in the backseat. You know, and when I came this close to possibly losing her, that's when I realized, you know what, I will never be apart from her. That's when I fully accepted her. Because you can only fully, truly love somebody when you fully, truly accept them. And that was my transformation. And that happened, you know, in her early teens. Like she must have been like 12 or 13. And that's when I said, you know what, our life is 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 going to look different from the way that I imagined it, and that's okay, because nobody can ever take care of her the way we, as our parents, could. We had a lot of instances of negligence with the nurses and were very frightening situations. And we were just like, nope, nobody, we no, we can't, we can't um, outsource that kind of care for Emma. You
0: know, it's interesting. I want to be really careful that I'm not comparing this, but but it's making me think you know, I have three kids and one of them has had some health issues that are, you know, just scary. How, any health issue is scary. And one time I was having a lot of panic and the panic was showing up as anger because that is and in fact in some of your writing you have an angry tone and I'm like, "Oh my god, and mm, I would" because when I'm afraid, I am like (laughs) a mega guns. I come out and I fast with my words and I can eviscerate people. And you wrote about like how that has a secondary damaging effect. I am so familiar with the apology flowers, but, (laughs) and and I was not always an angry person. I developed, I developed an an angry part, a resistant part as part of my therapy in my twenties. So I really love that part of me, but some, we have this, issue with my son and, and I got really afraid and I got really angry and I was angry at my husband and his response was, you don't have to come. Like, don't come to the appointment. Mm. And it just knocked the wind out of me because I was like, that's not even a choice. Like, Uh I I wish that felt like a choice. The way that I have to mother, the part of me that is a mom doesn't get to choose to opt out of this terrifying doctor's appointment. Right. Yes. I would like to not go. And I appreciate you inviting me to not go. I think that's actually one of the surprising things about certainly parenting, but I think of life in general is that for many of us, there is an important story. My my story, which has childhood trauma in, in it is that there will be enough emotional support that people will be available. There will be enough emotional support. Parents will show up for children enough, enough, enough. I work with people who grow up in poverty. There's going to just be enough resources. I've, you know, grown up where people there, they were sexually abused. I work with them as they're growing up. They now have created environments where, you know, children will tell bodies are safe. I think when we have those stories, we don't just have them because, We think they're good stories or better stories than when we came from. They are literally the stories that are going to heal wounds of our childhood. So when you're talking about, I'm going for this American dream, what I know about what you're describing is because there is an ache in there that believes Right? Like one time I asked my son after he busted his lip, what would help? And he was like, ice cream will help me. And i was like, I <laughs> that, that's a good idea, that will help. But I think most of us have these ideas of what, what is going to cure that old ache. And what is fascinating to me is when the new aches that are not childhood trauma, but are events in our lives we're growing these new parts of us like parenting or career person or someone who wants to be retired. Those two things, when they converge, they don't always, they don't always play nice. The thing that I need here as someone moving into retirement doesn't match up with, you know, cause that's going to be smaller and more isolated and, and a quieter life doesn't match up with the lonely child that I was who needs to be banded and connected with lots of people. So there's something about your story that I'm holding in my chest, which is you're learning and relearning the way that you are connecting and loving your child is not just for Emma, but it's for you. You can't, you can't be without her. That mm-hmm. won't work for you. Right. And, and navigating that important story of life is going to look this way and then it's going to feel this way. And I just really deeply relate to that because I think in my life, there was a lot of like, don't ask for help as a kid. There's not really a ton of help to be had. And in my adult life, I really want there to be a lot of help and right for that kid that existed. And there's all this shit I have to do myself. Mm -hmm. No one else can do it for me. And mm-hmm. grief is like that. No one else can grieve for me. I have mm-hmm. to do it all by myself. There can be company, there can be connection. But that thing that I really wanted in my childhood life, which was to never feel this alone, pops up in as a griever. And that's the truth of it. You are alone. You are. Mm-hmm. And so the kind of help that I want, I'm learning. It's actually for me to give to myself, which is surprising, I think. Mm-hmm. the It's a deeply, I don't know, like a spiritual piece. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to hear that story of the bus and that it's got this like, you know, spiritual element of feeling connected and protected. And that is what helps you drop the story a little bit of we're going to live this way. And and then you're in, this is the way we're living. I can't do it any other way. That just sounds so incredibly beautiful to me.
1: Yeah. I think also what helped me too, to connect in, and with the, the whole story of like, she's here to teach me something, to transform. I mean, not just to teach me something, she's here for herself to fulfill whatever she needs to, but the, the fact that I connected with her after she passed. I went to a medium about a month after she passed and I completely connected with her. And I'm, so much so that when I left that appointment, I felt like I had my life back. And because I made that connection, it was why I wrote the book, because I believed that this was not the end of the story. I was made to believe that this is not the end of the story. I'm going to write the story. There's something to this. I have to look at it deeper. And this was the gift that in the writing, I got to reflect and see all the, you know, the different, like Mm -hmm. the transformations that took place, the push and the pull. I was fighting it, but you know, this was, you know, it was in front of me. Like what what I had the information that I needed to change, to transform, to grow, to accept. And Emma embodied that. Like she was, she always had kind of like the Zen existence, right? She was okay watching her musicals and flipping through magazines, like in a self-stimulating kind of way and chewing out her bibs. And to look at her, you say like, oh, She had this likeness of being, right? And like, oh, she is in the moment. This is like what we try to achieve when we meditate, like, right? Really be in the moment, be mindful. And she was like demonstrating I was living in the University of Emma, and she was demonstrating how to be in the world. And so, as a result of that, all my anxieties and all my worries and everything that I brought with me from you know my adolescence, they sort of took a backseat because now. I had more important things to to contend with. I had to keep Emma safe and happy and pain-free. And so my focus shifted to that. And by trying to sort of take her pain away, she was essentially taking my pain away, you know? And that's the biggest way that her life really transformed me. Like I just had to look carefully and sort of do like Emma, be like Emma, you know? (laughs)
0: Like, God, like I love I'm- that. I love that so much. And I know we're on a podcast and this podcast is ostensibly for other people, but I'm just going to tell our listeners that I think you're talking right to me today, that this <laughs> is like <laughs> is giving me a personal message. Oh. I mean, I think partly because exactly what you're describing is part of the battle in in grief, right? The concept of suffering really is in that Buddhist tenet, the belief that things should be other than they are. And then if you drop that story, then there's enough and okay right in front of us, right? Because we would be very aware if we were in danger, our system would be lit up from inside and that there's good enough and enough and that your experience with a medium, which is the part where, you know, I'm, I am wildly uncomfortable with the energetic spiritual parts of life. And I have lived that way since I was really, really young, the academic in me wants all the explanation. That's my I husband. Had, yeah. <laughs> I, I had religious upbringing, which does not fit at all and did a lot of damage, which I wish yeah. could have been differently. Cause then it would just explain the kind of magic that I experience in my life. But I had tons of energy that I would say falls into sort of the medium, you know, the universe trying to give you a gift just after my mom died, particularly in the weeks after she died. And I have had much less so two years out. And I know, I know 100% it's because I'm blocking that from happening. Mm -hmm. I know it is. And so there have been all of these invitations, including you just saying it right now. I I had (laughs) this wonderful experience with a medium that are reminding me that there is support and connection, right? That sense of belonging, support and connection that is out there that I can plug into if I choose it, right? Exactly. And I yeah. know that I'm headed in that direction and I'm probably gonna turn this podcast into a whole <laughs> you know, woo-woo spiritual thing. That's fine. But, I, but again, we're talking about being connected to our to our neighborhoods, to our families, to our community, religious, disability, support, whatever. You know, do am I part of my college alumni? How do I experience... Support. And I think it's so important for grievers. You know, you don't have to say everything that they're, that you've ever wanted to say before they die. You don't have to have a movie moment where I said, I love you. And you say, I love you. I mean, the first, the last thing my mother said to me, which is in my memoir was get your fucking dog away from me. Like that was the last <laughs> sentence between us, which is so ironic because, you know, we always ended everything with, I love you, but we were in this like funny, playful place and my puppy was biting her, Mm -hmm. but we, you don't have to, you don't have to do all that perfectly because there is access to this energy, which is Emma's energy that you, you hold as the living memory of her. And also, you know, breath becomes air, like quantum physics, her energy goes out into the universe. Why shouldn't you be able to tap into it? Why shouldn't it be there for you to continue to have a relationship and a connection with? So I'm really personally grateful that you just added that piece. But I also like to really remind our listeners of that because I think it provides some hope, right? There's Mm -hmm. so much Mm -hmm. particularly in early grief that just feels like, how can this be this way? And, you know, one of the things that we talk about in this podcast all the time is you will be grieving the rest of your life. That doesn't mean it will be as painful as it is in this moment for the rest of your life, but also if it isn't painful right now, it might be later, you know, it's part of you. It's part of how you engage in the world. Not all of that will be bad, but sometimes it'll be bad. Sometimes it'll be Mm -hmm. painful instead of teaching you some lesson about gratitude. I would, I would love for you in to give us some sort of, how has it been in the, in the in the period of having written your story, living six years without Emma, how, how, what does that feel like for you now?
1: So in the time that it took me to write the book and connect with writers, teachers, readers, has been so healing and unexpectedly because as I said, I, you know, I never saw myself as a writer. I, I've been saying that like, you know, I've been playing one on you know, playing one for the yes, last five years I six really relate years. to this. I know what I'm you're not talking a about. Writer, right. Like you feel like I'm not pastor. either. Yeah. yeah. But it's been wonderful because of the community now, this other community that I found of special needs parents and writers and readers. And the feedback just in the time since the book came out and since I've been promoting it on social media as far as like sharing pictures and sharing little stories, it's resonating with others. And I'm so grateful for that. I couldn't have anticipated because the truth is when I started writing, I was writing for selfish reasons, right? Like I needed to heal. I needed to put down this down on paper. But then it ended up, you know, being helpful to others, I'm hoping, and special needs parents have reached out to me and they said, this resonated. And, you know, I wrote the book, I guess that I wish I had to read when Emma was born. And so that is such a gift for me that I'm able to connect on that level. So it's been beyond Yes. what I could have ever imagined, because as I said, I wrote for different reasons. I'd never anticipated that the book would be out in the world and have this reception and touch so many others. So for that, I'm very grateful. And that and is completely, you know, Emma's gift, right? Like yeah. this is, this book is a celebration of her life and of all the, you know, all the gifts that she shared. And of my transformation, the rearranging of my heart, that is all attributed to my life with Emma. And, you know, you know, the world is fair. Sometimes they can give you second chances. And that's hence the subtitle of my book. And although I wish that she was still with us, um, Uh I understand her purpose. And I understand now that there are different shapes of personhood, right? And that Emma redefined perfection for me so that what I thought was perfection before is not that at all, right? We are perfect just the way we are. There's no more or less value if you are able or disabled, if you contribute to society or not. There's just intrinsic value and worth in being the way you are. I guess in terms of like parting words, if I were to say what's really, what it's really at, at, at the crux of my journey is that, we we shouldn't be afraid to grieve right because we know that grief is like the other side of the coin of love right we grieve because we love and that in itself is a gift gorgeous
0: so, it's so gorgeous the theme of belonging and community is so is so palpable in the discussion and what's fascinating and i think about so many people that I have spoken to who this is what they went through. It was a short period of time. It was a long period of time, but this is what they went through. And yeah, they had all the sort of basic fight, fight, flight, all the basic need stuff that went on, but they didn't have the reflective emotional experience that they had access to then. And again, I sort of think sometimes when you are in that you want community then I think what you're describing, and I've never really thought about it this way because your writing experience and my writing experience was similar in that, you know, I had writing in my history, but not, not since like high school, I hadn't really sat down. You know, I took a different tact. I was a teacher and a social worker and I didn't need to do a lot of writing. And if I did, it was academic. So it wasn't creative. And I wasn't like digging down into my emotional experience, but it was there almost immediately when I was in pain And my best friend who's, you know, the keeper of most of my memories was like, oh yeah, you wrote when you went through this breakup, you wrote when this, you know, terrible world event happened. And the writing did just what you're describing, which is like, first it was, you know, you called it selfish. I call it self-centered, meaning like I'm not taking, selfish to me feels like I'm taking something from other people. This was just like, I'm sorry, I can't get to you until I... Mm-hmm. Tend to myself. So it was really self-centered writing right, right. and I chose to share it. And it, fe- you know, just on the internet and felt really vulnerable about that. And like so many people do. And immediately it, somebody I, I had lost touch with from high school, who I didn't realize was friends with me on Facebook wrote right back and was like, Hey, I just want you to know, you know, it's my dad's anniversary. I just read your piece. This was so important. And like, oop, there's community. It continues with the podcast. Anytime I put a podcast out, I have this anxious sort of, oh my God, was that garbage? Do I sound like an idiot? (laughs) And somebody responds like, you have no idea how important this was to me. This is really significant. And it's interesting because both my best friend and my husband, who have always been my community and my home, my best friend since I was 11, my husband since I was 26. But they both said, it's interesting given the fact that you don't do anything on the internet. You're very, very, very private. And I am Mm -hmm. also, I was sort of taught to be that as a therapist that I started with the matchlight of really vulnerable writing. And what I realized then is I needed people to respond to me Mm -hmm. that I am held better with my emotional experience. When someone says me too, I hear you. I get it. That if I just write it for myself, that's good and processed, but that's not where I get the healing. And it's the same, like I cry better when I'm talking to someone else. I don't cry by myself. I don't think not everybody does that, but for me, that was part of what was important. So it's so fascinating because we'll end where we began, which is you and I haunt the same rooms as grief writers. (laughs) Yeah. we published in the same Love places, that. we're connected to the same folks. I have friends, I'm in DC. I have friends who write for big magazines here and are editors at big online forums it doesn't feel like that in their rooms. It's not just any old writing and I'm not disparaging them They're They've been lifelong writers, yeah. but it is like that when you're talking to people about grief writing, to me, it feels like we all kind of belong to the same church and we know sort of the religious practice and it is community and it is connection. It really yes. deeply, it really deeply is. And so when this podcast used to be called "Grieve is a verb, you know, writing is one of those ways. I have known people who are doing this with music. They're playing in small groups with people. They're playing online, that they're doing their art. It's for them, but they're also, I just went to this gorgeous like church exhibit of a woman who's been doing art, not necessarily grief related, but more community related. And so I'm, I'm just saying that out loud to remind folks that you and I are saying instinctively, we went to writing. I think in grief, people instinctively go somewhere. They Mm -hmm. may join a marathon running group. They may decide that, you know, they want to go back to singing, but something that is an expression of the energy that you're holding. And you may only discover that you're holding it when whatever the period of time is that was generating all the energy
1: Mm -hmm.
0: has come to its completion. So whether it's parenting your daughter and her death, and then, I need this community. I need to spend this time with the writing and the words, or during that period of time, my dad has cancer. I need to get a cancer group to just know that all of those things are grieving. And and we don't have a choice. We have to grieve. We have to do it because otherwise we're only, we're only holding the energy and we won't, we won't be able to keep living. We will, we will be burdened by grief.
1: Right. And there's, different ways of grieving. There's no right or wrong way of grieving. And there's big ways of grieving and more private ways of grieving.
0: Yeah. Right. Lifelong. Lifelong. Yes. From, yeah. You know, from the moment that you become a griever, lifelong. Yeah. Yeah. If people want to keep up with you and read more of your writing, which I really, you know, again, I don't know what will touch people, but I'm going to say this. She's very modest about her writing in our little podcast here. It's really beautiful, gorgeous and I, this is the word that came to me. It's like stark, like mm-hmm. sort of. I think how anger sometimes tells the truth. You know, yeah. your word telling the truth. And I really, I think your writing's gorgeous. Your short essay Thank is the oh. memoir, really beautiful. So I hope Thank people go and pick that up. But if they want to find you and follow you and keep up with your events and things, what's the best way to do that?
1: Yeah, they can. Thank you, by the way, Megan, for that. Um, yeah. They can find me on my website at um, dcooperschmidt.com. And also I post, I'm pretty active on Instagram, pics by DK. I have to think about that, pics by DK. And, you know, I have a Facebook page, but I'm very active on Instagram and
0: then, and and my website, I guess. Yeah. That's so great. So I'll put all that stuff in our show notes so people can go and find you. And I say this anytime I have a writer on, but if people will go and give us a review on Apple podcasts, you go to the show, you click on the show, not the episode, click on the show. And if you scroll down four or five shows, you can put in stars, put in comments. And the first 10 people to do that, I will send you a copy of Diana's book because I always order them when my guests are on. So I will be happy to do that. And yeah, so we will keep, following you. And I, I just know you and I are going to find ourselves reconnected. We're going to be talking on a panel one day or say, Hey, let me (laughs) introduce you to my friend. And I'm going to say, don't be silly. We already know each other. Um, this was really, really, really delightful. Good luck. All the things, especially especially with the book. I really, you Mm. know, it's, it's incredibly special story. And I just have a feeling we're going to we're going to keep reading your writing. I have a hunch that uh, oh, that community you feel. This built. is not the end of the story, right? It's yeah. not the end of the story. It never <laughs> is. It never is. So thank you so much for sharing with us today. And and yeah, thank be well. Thank you, Megan.
1: I have to say, thank you so much. This was lovely and you were gracious and kind and I appreciate everything. Oh, thank you. Thanks for <laughs> being here. Good luck so to you. Lovely. All right. Thank okay. You. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you want to know more about Diana and her work, all the information's in the show notes. And please, if you liked it and you've been a listener for a while, go over to Apple Podcasts. You have to go find the show and then click into the show. And if you scroll a couple shows down, you'll see the stars and the option to give us a rating. The ratings really help people find us. And that's why we're doing this work is to provide a voice in the dark to folks who are struggling. Thanks so much.